Each week, a part of our liturgy is to invite the host forward to receive an offering. And two things happen in this moment. First, it's a time to uh, uh, just acknowledge your generosity. Your faithful giving to Waterstone keeps the lights on, pays the staff, helps us to have a presence, a rich, deep presence in this community, as well as uh, support global partners around the world. So thank you. And then also we take this time, I know many of us give online, but still want to do this as you pass that bag, you get an opportunity to say thank you to God for everything he's given you, health, strength, life, work, all the blessings that we call life. So feel free to do that as we take this offering. Hey, I want to again say congratulations to all the families of those who were baptized. We are honored to share this joy with you, and we're glad you're here this morning. One other question. Uh, this past week was the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. Were any of you there? Yeah, we haven't had anyone yet in the services uh, there. Uh, how many of you have been there? To, the, to Woodstock where it was. I, I've actually been there. We, my wife was born and raised in Syracuse, and we've traveled New York State a lot. In a previous life, I was a youth pastor. Now, I remember once we were on a tubing trip, and we drove near Woodstock, and uh, you know, my job as a youth pastor was to give you know, young people the facts they need for life. So uh, they needed to know who Jimi Hendrix was and uh, the who. And so I took this opportunity. I'll never forget one of them asking, uh, were you there? Uh, you know, I was seven years old when Woodstock happened. No, I wasn't there. But uh, amazing moment in history. Hey, um, Jesus said, as much as you have helped these, my brothers and sisters, you've helped me. And you know, Jesus comes to Waterstone almost daily. And he looks like this. He looks like Randy, who came in a while back Randy is dying of liver disease, and he needed our food pantry and some King Supers cards for gas. We helped him out. We heard a story. With Randy was his 16-year-old daughter. And as I talked with Randy, I was sneaking glances at Jade, and her head was down. She was embarrassed to be there asking for help. And just, I think, the overall situation, she was suffering. And uh, so as I talked to Randy, I was trying to draw Jade, his daughter, into the conversation. And I, at one point, turned and said, Jade, what do you like to do? What's your favorite thing to do? And Randy answered and said, well, she loves music. And uh, I said, what kind of music? And Randy answered and said, oh, she loves 70s, classic rock. And I said, really? I mean, uh, that's my music. I, I knew that music before it was classic. And I said, <laughs> I said, who's your favorite group? And uh, again, Randy answered and said, she loves the Doobie Brothers. I said, you're kidding me. That was my first A-track tape that I used to play in my 72 Chrysler Newport. I mean, I love the Doobies. And I said, uh, what's your favorite song? And finally, Jade looked up with this little smile on her face and sang in a voice I've never forgotten, Old Black Water. Keep on rolling, Mississippi moon, won't you keep on shining on me? Then she, then she said, what's your favorite? I said, oh. Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. Oh, yeah. Jesus is just all right. Oh, you know it. You should be saying, well, Jesus is just all right. Woo! 
You know, I think everyone likes that song. Maybe not the doobies. Maybe not the music. But I think everyone likes that message. Jesus, he's my friend. They like that he's compassionate and kind. They like that he's wise and, and articulate. I mean, the life that Jesus lived, the life that he promotes, it's a beautiful thing. Until somebody asks you, but what happened to Jesus? Then you got to tell the truth. The truth is that Jesus, at the age of 33, 34, became a criminal of the state, was executed by the Roman Empire. The thing is, he, he seemed to know it was going to happen. In fact, he angled and, and talked to the wrong people about the wrong things. I mean, he, he made these claims to be the son of God, and he riled up his Jewish community, and they leveraged riot for riddance, and they backed Rome into a corner until both Israel and Rome thought it expedient to put this man down. And they did. And it wasn't, uh, you know, a beheading. It wasn't uh, stoning. It was the worst kind of death imaginable. He was crucified. I don't know how many of you know this, but when a person was crucified, they actually suffocated to death. Your arms would be wrapped around a, a crossbar, and you'd be put up on a pole, dropped into a hole in daytime so that it was a spectacle and you actually, in order to breathe, with all your body weight hanging down, you had to pull yourself up to get air into your lungs. And you just wore down. And you couldn't pull up anymore, and finally you would suffocate. And there were reports of people lasting on the cross for days, except for the worst of the worst. Then they would not only tie you to a cross, they would put nails through your wrist through the tops of your feet, so that when you pulled up to breathe, you would be in agony. The amount of time that you would stay on the cross and, and until you died really depended on how badly you were beaten beforehand. Jesus lasted six hours. His back had no skin on it. He suffocated, bled out, died. And by this time, people aren't singing anymore. In fact, there are many who say, if that's what your religion is centered on, if that's the symbol, I'm not interested. Thanks, but no thanks. So our question today, why did Jesus die this way? Why the cross? Let's come up for air. Take a deep breath. That's heavy. We'll get back to it. What I want to do now is just frame the series. It's a mini-series, three weeks. And we're, we call this kind of series a culture care Series. These next three weeks, we want to talk about culture care. And culture care is one of Waterstone's values. It's on our website. You, you would read this. 
Waterstone is culturally engaged, not retreating from society and world, but equipping people to make a positive impact in all their spheres of influence. We believe as a church that we don't come here and huddle and keep to ourselves and say this is safety. No, we believe that God has called us to go into every single place of our lives, especially the dark places, especially where there's places that people are struggling and suffering and need words and and ministries of hope and help. We go there. That's where we're called to. This is just fuel for us to go out and engage our culture with the, the, the words and the works of Jesus Christ. We engage. No one has articulated it better in our day what culture care is than uh, Makoto Fujimura, an artist in New York City. He wrote, culture care is to provide care for our culture, culture's soul, to bring our cultural home a bouquet of flowers so that reminders of beauty, both ephemeral and enduring, are present even in the harshest environments where survival is at stake. Culture care restores beauty as a seed of invigoration into the ecosystem of culture. Such care is a generative, uh, is generative. A well-nurtured culture becomes an environment in which people and creativity thrive. So we want to fuel you up in here to go out there and have conversations that are generative, life-giving, creating beauty. So one of the questions we want you to think about and be equipped for is when somebody asks you, what do you believe at your church? And often in this day and age, you'll hear it asked this way. Well, your church on your website said you're in a historic evangelical church. What's an evangelical? Are you ready for that conversation? Now, let me just talk about that word a little bit. A couple things. First, I've really stopped using that word. When I, when I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking to myself, this would be a good time to do some give and take with the audience. And I would say, what do you think an evangelical is? And frankly, I didn't want to do it because the answers I would get back would be scary. (laughs) Because the word evangelical has become so loaded with bad baggage. I mean, some people in our culture, when they hear the word evangelical Christian, they think Republican. They think Trump supporter. They think right-wing, pro-life, narrow, cynical, arrogant, loaded with political baggage. It's also loaded with cultural baggage. Some people think fanatics, rapture rabies. (laughs) I I sit on the board uh, of a local nonprofit and a couple weeks back, we had a guy come in who works with nonprofit boards, and he gave us a ton of good advice. But the way he presented himself was rather bombastic, rather preachy, and like, if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you, that kind of approach. And so last week, we had another board meeting, and we were debriefing that time with this consultant, and one of the board members made this comment, <laughs> that was the most evangelical talk I've ever heard. So now evangelical describes a communication style. Can you see why I'm reluctant to you? If I'm engaged in a conversation with a person who does not know Jesus yet, I don't use the word because it could be politically or culturally baggaged. 
You know what I, I do? It depends on the situation, but sometimes I'll use the phrase, I'm a conservative Protestant. Ah, I'm not even, you know what I usually do? Larry, what's your church about? Well, we're at Waterstone. We strive to be followers of Jesus. How's that play for you? I like that. Followers of Jesus. Yet, I'm not quite ready to let that word go. I'm not going to use it to describe myself, but I am going to use it in-house to talk about what we believe. Because that word is a historic word, and it really describes the three things we believe that make a Christian orthodox. Let me unpack those quickly. An evangelical Christian is someone who believes that Jesus is the center of everything. He's the the God-man who came to lay down his life on a cross. His godness means that his blood is an infinite value and can save the world. His manness means that he became killable. And there's no other savior like him, no other person that could do what he did. There's no one like Jesus. He's the most amazing, beautiful person ever. That's the beginning and the end for us. An evangelical Christian is a person who's about Jesus. Second, an evangelical Christian believes that the only way a person gets to see Jesus and take him into his heart is the Holy Spirit opens their eyes, opens their heart, plants faith in them. The Spirit then comes and lives in that person, and it dwells in us, and then he lives in this church. This is why Waterstone's different than the Elks Club. Jesus lives in us. And it's, it's also why this movement, this Christianity movement, just won't die. It's over, over two and a half billion strong. It's because Jesus is the center and the Spirit is pointing everyone to him. And then thirdly, there's Jesus, there's the Holy Spirit, and there's the Father. And the Father's concerned that we know the story. You know, everyone walked in here believing a story. You believe a story, I believe a story that explains reality. Why are we here? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Everyone believes a story, even if your story is that there's no God and that we're, when we're done here, we're done and we become worm food and, and that's it. That's a story and you believe that by faith. You've never lived, I don't care who you are, what story you believe, you've never lived a moment of your life without faith in a story. The question is, where do you get your information? Where? Christians believe Jesus is the provider The Spirit is the applicator of what he's provided, and the Father gave us a book called the Bible that is the source material for what we believe. It tells the story. That's an evangelical. That's what we believe. So if you want to tell people that, what's your church about, that's a good thing. I still probably wouldn't use the word evangelical, (laughs) too much baggage, but you need to tell them what we believe. Jesus, the Spirit, the Scriptures. No one has captured this better in our time than than an Anglican uh, priest, the late John Stott. The three essentials to which evangelical people are determined to bear witness concern the gracious initiative of God the Father in revealing himself to us, in redeeming us through Christ crucified, and in transforming us through the indwelling spirit. For the evangelical faith is the Trinitarian faith. This is why evangelical Christians place such emphasis on the Word, the cross, and the Spirit. Now, one brief footnote. 
Sometimes we hear this evangelical, especially as it's bandied about in the media, as a rather new movement. Some think it started, you know, with the rise of Jimmy Carter, who was the first evangelical to become president, and Billy Graham's ministry was at the high point. And so we think this, this movement's like 40, 50 years old, and it started then. Uh-uh. Do you know that the word evangelical in English, uh, in, this, in this country, was first applied to three dudes named Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and John Wesley, who preached we call it the Great Awakening, all along the eastern seaboard, 80% of the American colonists heard one of these three dudes preach. And they were evangelicals. Why? Because they believed in Jesus the provider, the Holy Spirit the applicator, and the scriptures. You go back to the 1600s, and the word was used to describe English Puritans and German Pietists. You go back to the 1500s, it was used to describe the Reformers who called themselves Evangelici Viri, evangelical men. You go back to the 1400s with John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, his nickname, Dr. Evangelicus. You go back to the 12th century, St. Thomas Aquinas. You go back to the 6th, 5th century, uh, Augustine. You go back to Irenaeus, Polycarp, and boom, you're back to the New Testament. Woo! Point. This movement of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father's scriptures is not a new development. It's the original development. It's the apostolic faith. It's the New Testament. It's not new. It's always. That's our roots. It's not new. All right. I've got that off my chest. That took much longer than I was. (sighs) Let's talk about the cross, shall we? Jesus. Paul describes the centrality of the cross to the Christian movement this way. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. A couple things to point out. May I never boast is rather tame. Some translations get there by saying, God forbid that I boast. My favorite paraphrase comes from an old translation from the South which said, boast in anything but the cross of Christ Hell no. That gets it. That gets it. In fact, the word boast means obsession. The cross for Paul filled his horizons. The cross captured his heart. The cross dominated his mind. It was the center of his faith, his life, his ministry. The cross. In fact, you heard when Jenny read the scripture earlier... Paul had an eye problem, we think, and thus when he wrote the New Testament letters to churches around the Mediterranean basin, he used a scribe. He would just speak out and they'd write it down and then send the letters out. Except in this case, did you, do you remember that he, Paul says, I'm taking up the pencil in my hand. See what big letters I'm writing with. Paul was so concerned, so emotional that he took the pencil up himself like he can't see, but he's writing these big letters. Why? Well, what had happened in this church, in this Greek church in Galatia, was that after they planted the church, they moved on to plant other churches, and some other teachers came in, and they began to teach it's a Jesus plus religion. You need Jesus, but you still need to be circumcised, which means you're still under the Jewish law, which means you need to do this and this and this, and then you'll be right with God. And Paul says, forgive me, hell no. No. One thing, 
makes us right with God. Jesus dying in our place for our sins. It's not what we do, it's what he's done. That's the gospel. And if I have to write a full page of letters, I'll do it. Where did Paul get that from? Well, he got it from the apostles. Let me quickly walk you through a couple of things, shotgun style here. Uh, The first sermon preached in the church is in Acts chapter 2. After the Holy Spirit comes, Peter gets up and preaches. Notice what he says. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's all we need to read. The cross is there, front and center, in the first message ever preached in the Christian church. Where did the apostles get it from? They got it from Jesus. It's everywhere in the Gospels and when he would preach, but let me just point out one quickly. Matthew chapter 16, the paparazzi is all around Jesus, but Jesus pulls the 12 apostles to side and says, hey, we need a huddle. Guys, guys, come in, huddle. And he says, who are they saying that I am? Now, Peter speaks first, and usually when Peter always spoke first, (laughs) but he was usually wrong. This time he gets it right. He actually says, Jesus... Some are are saying you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some are saying that you're Elijah, come back to life. But then Jesus says, but you, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, classic, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the king. You are the king, the son of the living God. Boom. Right on. (laughs) What's funny, Jesus says, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. The Holy Spirit revealed that to you. See, Jesus was an evangelical. But we won't. (laughs) Boom. And then Jesus says, from now on, we are going to turn and start walking to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, I'm going to be tortured. I will suffer and I will die. And Peter, again, Peter speaks first. The text says, Peter rebuked Jesus. No, that's, what are you talking about? No. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me. Ouch. Point. If you do not hold on to who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you don't hold on to what he's done on the cross in Jerusalem, You're in nobody's grip but Satan's. The cross is central. It's why in John 21, this this interesting statement, John is winding down the book and he says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have enough room for the books that would be written. In other words, the Bible could be a hundred times longer, the New Testament, but How did the disciples filter with the Spirit's help? How did they filter what goes in? What's interesting, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, there's 89 chapters. 30 of those chapters are about the death of Jesus. 30. Central. And then finally, do you remember when we take communion once a month, at least we do here at Waterstone? We have the bread, we have the cup. Do you remember the statement at the end of that liturgy? We we always say, as often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's what? Not birth, not resurrection, death. 
you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The cross is central to our belief in Jesus. And the question is, why? Now here we enter realms that I'm not fully prepared to talk about. We enter mystery. We enter trying to figure out the mind of God. So when I say this to you, I'm saying these are my convictions, but this is a work in progress, and we may never know some of this. This is not dogmatic. This is speculative. But let me say, I think there's at least two reasons why I think Jesus died on a cross in the way that he did. The first reason is to show us how devastating sin is. Devastating. What do you think of when you hear me say the word sin? I imagine some of us think of a candy bar that we walked out of a store with without paying when we were a kid. I, I imagine some of us think of rumpled bedsheets. I, I imagine some of us think of orange sludge coming out of the end of a pipe into a river. I, I would imagine some of us think of parts of our life that to this day are still propped up by a lie that we told years ago. I, I don't know what you think when you hear me say the word sin. But I think the question is to ask this, what does God see when we say the word sin? The word itself means to miss the mark. In other words, God says and gave us rules for life that would put us here. You know that's right why we have the Bible. Every time God says do, he means do help yourself. This is the good life. Every time he says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. But if you'll forgive my language, there came a point in history when our ancestors, Adam and Eve, said, God, I know it, I know what you're saying, but uh, I give you the finger. I want to go my own way. I want to live my own life. I know you say this. I, say, I know you say don't do this, but screw you. And when we said screw you, distance devastating distance between us and God. We basically said, I dishonor your holiness. We basically said, your throne, uh-uh, not in my world, not in my life, or maybe when it's convenient. And we basically said, your love, don't need it. God says you could be up here. We live here. We commit acts of sin in thought, word, and deed. Knowing what God wants us to do and where he wants us to live, we choose to live here. But it's not only the acts of sin that bring this distance. And by the way, the penalty for that distance, the, the penalty is determined by the magnitude of the one who sinned against. And the penalty is separation from God. You, we no longer have the fitness to live in his presence. So we sin, but the reason we sin is because we're sinners. You see, sin is not just an act, it's a condition. Deep in our hearts, there's something broken. We're natural-born narcissists, and we seek ourselves first. I know it's always a work in progress. After we come to Jesus, he changes our heart, and there's growth, but we still struggle, and we're, we're broken. We're, Luther said our, sir, our soul is curved in on itself. That's us. And you know, right, you know it's even in places like this, well-to-do Littleton, 
white-collar places, high places, proper places, where we even see that there are acts of evil and cruelty and violence happening. Do you know why? Solzhenitsyn, who spent most of his life in a Russian gulag, he figured it out. He said, you know, the dividing line between good and evil is not good people over here and bad people over here. The dividing line between good and evil runs right down the middle of every human heart. I was uh, reading some sermons the other day by a preacher that I've always admired. He's, he's dead now. He's with Jesus. His name's Fred Craddock. He told this story that just captured me and it's worked its way into the sermon. A few years ago, he writes, a very fine writer and novelist by the name of Jack Abbott was in federal prison in Atlanta. He wrote an article and sent it in to a New York literary journal. It was published and acknowledged as one of the most beautiful things written in our generation. I can almost remember a line from it. Over the wall, the smell of magnolia and peach and soft late evenings almost change a man. Some of the most powerful people in New York, literary figures, political figures with influence said, anyone who can write a line like that should not be in prison. They exercised their power and got his sentence reduced. Before long, Jack Abbott was in New York City. Over the wall, the smell of magnolia and peach and soft late evenings. He dined at a nice restaurant in New York a few weeks after he got out. After he finished a long evening of eating and drinking, he came out with his friends and said to the parking valet, bring me my car. The valet said, just a moment, there are some in front of you. Abbott said, bring me my car. And the valet said, you'll have to wait your turn, sir. We'll bring it in a few minutes. Abbott then pulled out a long knife and killed the attendant. Over the wall, the smell of magnolia and peach. And he killed again. Craddock writes, we need to be reminded that just because people have been to school and just because they have a nice income and just because they live in the better part of town and just because they are children of some of the best families, they can still be responsible for some of the ugly cruelty in the world. And Jesus dies on the cross to tell us how the world is. Ugly, cruel. Each of us, in our own ways, wrestling with how far short we fall from the glory of God. So Jesus dies on the cross to show us how devastating sin is and how it's messed this world. He also dies on a cross to display his devastating love to us. His love is seen on the cross in two ways. First, that he decides to go to the cross. When I first started in ministry well over 30 years ago, some of you old-timers... Maybe you didn't go to Woodstock, but you might have gone to this movie. Um, it was called The Last Temptation of Christ by a Greek novelist named Nikos Kanzantzakis. And the, the storyline, you know, evangelicals were boycotting the movie and blah, blah, blah. I remember even as a young youth pastor thinking, hey, I, I think that's an interesting premise to wrestle with. The premise was this. What if Jesus, as the noose tightened around his neck in Jerusalem on his way to the cross, what if he said, wait a minute, Wait, I think I've changed my mind. I think I'm going to settle down with Mary Magdalene, have some kids, and live the good life. Okay, is that okay with you? 
That's what the question was of that movie. Now, you know, we can argue about how healthy that is for the culture. That even conversation would be, I think, a moment of culture care. We missed an opportunity if all we did was protest. We are so good at missing opportunities when all we do is protest. I, anyhow, uh, where am I going? Um, <laughs> the fact is, if Jesus had gone that way, we could never sing the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. The fact is, Jesus stayed. He chose to go to the cross. He chose to limit his freedom. He chose to lay down his life. Do you know what that's called? Love. Love. Devastating love. Love is the willing limitation of your freedoms in order that another might prosper. I love our staff at Waterstone. Uh, it's an amazing, competent, hardworking staff. But the thing I love most about it right now is about two-thirds of our staff are in their 20s and 30s. It's just life-giving to be around that. But what's also fun is to see these new uh, staff, these young staff taking the first steps, you know, in adult world, like having kids. And I love to see these young parents coming in, been up all night, caring for their child. They come into our lunchroom, and there's bags under their eyes, and they're <laughs> sitting down. And everything in me wants to say, aha, you're learning about love, aren't you? <laughs> love means you limit your freedom. You can no longer play like you used to play. You can no longer work like you used to work. You can no longer sleep like you used to sleep. What you are figuring out is it's either them or us. Someone has to limit their freedom. If you limit yours in love, they'll do well. If you don't, they'll grow up physically, but that's all. Fortunately, you're making the right choice. And if you need to take a 20-minute nap, take a 20-minute nap. We learn that in parenting. Love. Self-sacrifice, self-substitution. That's what Jesus does in going to the cross. That's what he displayed. You know, the other thing he displayed is forgiveness. Love that changes our hearts, forgiveness that forgives our sins. You know, forgiveness always means there's been an injury or a damage to a relationship but someone has to absorb that in order to restore the relationship. Forgiveness always means there's a cost, and somebody pays the cost. I used to pastor a church in New England, in Cape Cod, in a town like, uh, called Osterville. And uh, just to give you some context, Bill Gates had a summer home in Osterville, and I once ran a 5K race with the granddaughter of Walt Disney. So we're talking about up there kind of town, and so the story I'm about to tell you will make sense. I used to, our, our church was right in the center of town. It was the center point right on Main Street. There used to be a deck off there. I'd go out and have my sandwich. And I used to just talk to people as they walked along the street. It was so awesome. I've tried it on bowls. It just doesn't work the same. Um, <laughs> one time I was sitting out there and uh, there was an empty parking space right in front of me. And on either side, a car was parked. And again, this is Osterville, Mercedes, Mercedes. Empty space. In comes a third Mercedes. 
stops, and I immediately notice that he's going he's to parallel park this thing. He must have been in his 80s. He was old, very old. He couldn't even turn around and look, so I'm like, I'm really going to watch this. He backs in, using his mirrors, cannot turn around, and by feel, he bumps into the car behind him, the Mercedes behind him. Then he pulls forward, bumps into the Mercedes in front of him. But he's still halfway out in the street. So he does it again. Turns, boom, boom. Gets out of the car, walks holding onto the car, looks at the front. Now he knows I'm watching him. And he says, after seeing no damage, German engineering. Walks to the back. There were pieces of the other car on the ground. American insurance. <laughs> Somebody pays when there's damage. And when it comes to our relationship in that distance, God absorbs the penalty. God absorbs the debt and restores us to relationship through the cross. So the cross is the demonstration of how much God loves us, how willing he is to restore relationship by paying for our sins. Which leads to this last question. Is the cross central to you? Let me give you two questions to help with that. If the cross is central to you, you've been deeply offended by the cross. The needs of the world, nothing you can do is enough. At some point, you have to come to the conclusion, wait a minute, Everything that I want to offer to God. And in order to reach that point, you have to be offended. You have to come to a point where you say, I, I'm not good enough. I can't do it. Nothing I can do. It's what Jesus has done. And you have to come to the point standing in the cross of saying, Jesus, I'm lost. And the only hope I have is that your son, no matter how good of spouse you are, it doesn't matter how good a worker you are, doesn't matter how good you are, it's not enough. You need what Jesus wants to offer you. Have you been offended? Have you come to the end of yourself and received what Jesus wants to give to you now? Forgiveness, resurrection. And secondly, has the cross become your boast? Every one of you walked in with a boast today. Could be your family, could be your work, could be the way you look, could be your money. You know, every one of us has that thing that we say, if I have that, I've got what I need. Or if I don't have that, I'm nothing. What is that for you? Paul says, for me, it's the cross. What's it for you? I do want to say this. If it's anything else besides the cross, you need to question it hard. Will it forgive your sins? Will it get you to heaven? Will it die for you? Will it give you a new heart? What will it do for you? Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is the cross your boast? Let's stand together and proclaim our faith with a 1,700-year-old uh, creed or 1,400. It was in the 315 A.D. I, I went to seminary. I didn't do math. 315 A.D., an evangelical creed, and if this is the first time you've ever 
even thought about asking Jesus into your life and realizing you need him and you need the cross, say this for the first time as a prayer and invite Jesus into your life. Altogether, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, global, and apostolic church. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And let's sing it out now. Enjoy. Enjoy.